We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. We're sold the myth of marriage as happily ever after, but it's impossible for two people to live together without wanting different things or having opposing views from time to time and falling out with each other. So if conflict is inevitable, how do you deal with it in a healthy way? As I always say, it's not just the depth of your love that counts, but how good your relationship skills are that make for a happy marriage. The good news is that skills can be taught. That's why I'm pleased my witness today is Tonya Lester. Tonya is a psychotherapist who specialises in acceptance and commitment therapy and trained with a former guest on my podcast, Terry Real. Check out the episode. It's one of my most listened to ones for a very good reason. She's also the author of a forthcoming book called Be Difficult, a guide to speaking up, facing conflict and changing your life. So what from your childhood prepared you to write a book on speaking up and facing conflict? Well, as you might guess, I came from a family where speaking up and facing conflict was, I wouldn't say not allowed, but definitely discouraged, especially for the women in my family. So I would say that I had a mom who modeled saying nothing, saying nothing, saying nothing, and then being very upset. And where, you know, I don't want to, my mom will, she'll listen to this. I wouldn't say she freaked out, but there was definitely an idea that you kind of take as much as you can. And then when you can't take it a minute more, everyone around you kind of panics to make everything okay. So I didn't learn to sort of speak up in the moment, even to say things like, I don't really understand that, or that doesn't sit right with me, or can we talk this through? I don't think this is working for both of us. And so that was a skill that I didn't learn until very far in my own marriage. And I wish I'd learned it earlier. And a lot of the work I do with couples, of course, is getting people to be less afraid of disagreement. Because I think when we think of conflict, we think of raging conflict we think of lashing out and we think of creating damage. And that's not what conflict is, you know, as you alluded to in the intro. It's okay to have a disagreement. We are two different humans trying to forge a life together and difference is inevitable. And so how are we going to compromise and kind of grapple with the differences? Now, one of your ideas is you want to be the good kind of difficult. So I think we need to explain what the good kind of difficult is. So the good kind of difficult is having a lot of self-awareness, taking full responsibility for who you are, communicating in a concise, efficient way while still being empathetic. So one of the major skills I work with with clients is this idea of being able to hold empathy for yourself and your partner at the same time, right? If you're going into a difficult conversation 
with a real sense of groundedness that you deserve to have a voice in your relationship, that your needs matter, and that you have permission to say what you need out loud. But your partner does too, right? And sometimes I think we can get into this binary headspace of I'm right, you're wrong, you're doing this to me, you're putting me in this position, or shamed because I lashed out, I'm too needy, I shouldn't be asking for this. And so I think of the good kind of difficult is maintaining empathy. And if we say the you know, bad kind of difficult or what I call being impossible, when you're not giving the other person a path to a win, when you're lashing out, when you're trying to either dominate the situation with anger or have a kind of a passive aggressive collapse where the other person needs to take responsibility for you, that's what I look at as the other kind, you know, the impossible. We don't want to be impossible. Because we sort of have in our society a sort of talk about high maintenance and low maintenance. And particularly women, we have lots of myths about low maintenance women. Perhaps you can explain what these are and why they are so deeply, deeply unhelpful. I say people are not meant to be low maintenance. You know, lawns can be low maintenance, cars can be low maintenance. Humans (laughs) should not be low maintenance. It's not how it works. And I, you know, I was a college student in the 90s and I I feel like I remember it being, you wanted to be like a cool girl, a low maintenance woman. And that's what like kind of guys wanted. And uh, well, they certainly don't want a crazy woman, do they? No, no. Right. But this is it, right? It's the binary. Like either you're crazy or you have no needs at all. And who wants that? Right. So I think there's also a thing of a woman trying to present herself as low maintenance. And so then maybe you enter into a marriage with a guy who maybe thinks you have very few needs, easy breezy, and then suddenly things get real, right? When you've been together a long time and it feels like a real shock to him too. Yes. What I normally see is it's once the children arrive is then suddenly it's impossible to be low maintenance and have children at the same time, I would say. Or, and not be just fiercely, bitterly resentful, right? I mean, that's what happens. I think when women continue to try to be low maintenance, ask for very little, and then, you know, there's rage. And one thing, actually, one of the things that kind of got me started on the book was I was seeing couples come in and the wife would have said, I'm done. I want a divorce. I'm so unhappy. And the husband would be shocked and not want the divorce at all. And whereas the wife would think she'd been speaking up and she thinks she had voiced some complaints. It wasn't done in a way where the man in in many situations, I'm not saying this is always gendered, but the man in many situations felt like, oh, wow, we really need to make a change here. And then she says she's going to leave. And that's when they come into couples therapy. And that's, as I'm sure you know, we can come back from the cliff, but I, I wish they'd come in maybe three years earlier. Yeah, you're talking about 25% of my clients, to be perfectly honest. Because I think also what happens is that the dissatisfied partner, and you know, I have men who are the dissatisfied partner who didn't speak up too, they sort of speak up. And then with the next sentence, they take it back because it's so shocking to say, you know, your anger is over the top and I hate it. And then they get upset about it. And then you reel it back and say, well, it's not so bad as after all. And what your partner hears is not the initial 
honesty, they hear the pullback. And so the message they get is, actually, it's not such a big problem. I agree with that so much. And I do want to emphasize that same thing. It's certainly not always the woman who's the unhappy partner. But I would say that culturally, there's a way women are encouraged not to speak up. That I I think for men, there's less kind of cultural pressure not to be the one to speak up. So I guess just to make that clarification. Yeah, and and I agree with you 100%. But what I find is that men are trained to fix and they try and fix their partner's emotions. And that means they're so focused on fixing their partner's emotions, they're not really in touch with their own emotions. And then Mm -hmm. so suddenly, one day, the dam bursts and they are the ones who are saying, I've had enough, you know, and the partner is saying, yes, but I can change and we can do things differently. And they say, I've done. Or worse still, I've already found somebody else to replace you. Uh, And that is completely and utterly devastating. I mean, if we can actually get people to speak up more, that would be brilliant. And I think we need to confess a little guilty secret here, because I had a very similar childhood to yours. I come from a family where nobody spoke about anything. So, you know, what a surprise I spend my whole life talking about emotions. And when I, in my spare time, I run a podcast Mm -hmm. where I talk about these things. But the guilty secret of couple therapists is that we're good at advocating speaking up ourselves to our clients and on the internet and, you know, anywhere we're asked to do it, but we're not so good at doing it at home. That's right. So tell me about the puppy and how you tried to avoid conflict yourself. So I would say, first of all, my husband and I were married pretty young, early 20s. He's a little bit older, but so I guess he was mid to late 20s and I was in my early 20s. And I just didn't, I was too young. I didn't know myself. I wasn't clear on what I wanted. He has a much more kind of clear, straightforward, really maybe even if he also wasn't sure kind of who he was or what he wanted, he could kind of throw down and put a stake in the ground in a way that I just wasn't able to. And so a lot of it was my attraction to him being so confident and being such a kind of a clear thinker, so smart so much integrity that I think I kind of just moved over to his side of things, not his fault, right? Certainly my choice. And then as we went through our marriage, not until we had kids, certainly to your point that, you know, I always say that to couples that it's a healthy relationship can stand pressure on the system. And that's actually the only way that relationships deepen and grow. And certainly having children, there's nothing that puts pressure on the relationship like having children. So it wasn't until we had kids that I felt that my values weren't always represented in our relationship, that I had sort of given up too much of myself And resentment built, but I had no idea how to speak to this. We'd been married by 10 years at this point, and so very much kind of set in our patterns. He had, you know, I'm sure very little idea of what was going on because I would try and talk myself out of my feelings. I would rationalize what was happening. I would say how I felt didn't matter. I would say he's such a wonderful person and we actually do have a great life. What am I complaining about? But of course, it doesn't work, right? The resentment keeps building. I continue not to say anything. And then when I really have to, for example, and as I wrote in the the modern love piece, 
I wanted to get a puppy, I would walk through Fort Greene, a park near my house on the way to work every day and see the puppies. And I just, I was ready. Probably also my son's going to college as well. I think I, there might've been a little replacement baby (laughs) and babiness going on. But I really went far down this path. Like a lot of people knew I was looking for a puppy, except for my husband, which is awful. (laughs) And I'm a therapist, so awful. Like if if a couple came into my office and said, she was reading books, finding trainers, talking about where to get the dog, looking at, you know, what kind of breed or type of dog. I would be like, you haven't mentioned it to your husband? Are you crazy? You know, yeah, that was me. Raise my hand. That was me. And so the other hard thing for my husband that we're getting much better at is that I don't share my thinking along the way. And so then when I do, understandably, he's taken aback. You know, if you go from zero, never mentioning getting a dog, barely. I mean, we did barely to suddenly saying, I want a puppy now, which was actually the same. And I found one. It's waiting outside in the car. <laughs> practically, <laughs> practically, almost. I did have a fantasy about just showing up one day because he is a big softy. I knew once he saw the puppy, he would come around. And my son reminded me, that's essentially how we got our cat. I had said there was a cat we were going to look at. And then we came with the cardboard box, you know, they give you at the rescue. Yeah. So I'm not, my side of the street and this marriage isn't clear. I'm not communicative enough. And I wasn't giving him a chance to kind of grow with me on an idea. And then if he'd get upset, I would be furious, you know, and be feeling very shut down by him, you know, which isn't fair to him. And I hope the piece emphasized, like, we are flawed people who love each other and trying to make our way. And often couple therapists are couple therapists because they need to be couple therapists in the sense that this is one of the most wonderful things Terry Real said is, I don't know if he said it to you as well, is that therapists need therapy so much, they have to be in it all the time. So they've turned it into (laughs) their profession. I love that. I hadn't heard him say that. I love it. One thing he does say that is similar to that, that I really like is that there's two buses and everyone is sick on both buses, but on one bus, they know they're sick. And on the other (laughs) bus, they don't know they're sick. And I think hopefully therapists, when we sit in session after session, I hope we know that we need to be, this is the stuff we need to be hearing, the stuff we're saying out loud. But your husband in this conversation about the puppy that didn't go particularly well said something very wise. He said, let's go to couple therapy. Now, what is it like being a couple therapist going to couple therapy? Because to me, that would be my worst nightmare. It was. It was my worst nightmare. I was not defensive, but it was very hard to find someone. Even in my, I had been with various individual therapists before I found my current longtime therapist. And it's very hard for me to not control sessions, right? So I really needed someone really strong, kind of a Terry Real type of a therapist. And we went to an RLT therapist, which is his training program, which I'm also an RLT therapist. And we, I wanted someone kind of directive because my instinct is to, it would be to control the session, to kind of manage everyone, to sort of sneakily just control it. So I knew we couldn't go to someone who had a more kind of laid back style. We had to find someone who was very directive. And it was my nightmare. I dreaded it. I totally dreaded it, but it was so valuable. I'm so glad we did it. What did you discover? Well, a big thing was just that me staying silent was creating this 
chasm in our relationship where I didn't feel close to Chris, my husband, because I had withdrawn emotionally. And I was the one who was kind of stonewalling emotionally and keeping quiet. Whereas I think I had projected that onto him. And the therapist, you know, said very clearly, you know, Tonya, you're putting yourself in a one down position. You're not saying anything. And then you're furious with Chris for acting like he's in a one up position, but you're the one who has created that dynamic. And Chris doesn't want that, but Chris can come across as very rigid and I am very flexible. And so we had sort of worked ourselves into this decision-making process that wasn't serving us at all. And truly, and you know, after my article came out, my husband was, who of course had read it before I even submitted it. And he, when it was in the newspaper, which I think is like, ah, you know, you see it in black and white. He said, I don't think I actually said no. Like, I don't think I, I was like, oh, I remember no, you know. He said, I think I came around on the dog pretty quickly. And, you know, to give him credit, like he wanted to work on a relationship. He's totally committed and he was absolutely ready to make changes, as was I. So I've put together healthy ways of dealing with conflict. And I think that this whole idea of healthy conflict is always a shock to people because our society doesn't differentiate between healthy conflict and destructive action. So I've got eight points. So we'll go through them and then let's see if you can add any more to them. So we can have a real, a real, how do we do it in a healthy manner? Because it's much better to be on the healthy bus than the sick bus. Because I think there can be a third bus, don't you? So the first one is you deal with the issues in a timely matter. What do I mean by a timely matter, do you think? Well, you know, to talk about it before you've come to a conclusion necessarily. So I think to invite your partner into the process right away and it's so that they are kind of following your thinking and not to stack up so that you have one of these kitchen sink arguments where everything comes out from the past year. And they say, I didn't even know you were mad about that. That happened a year ago, right? So if you're ruminating on something, that's a sign you should be saying it out loud. If you're saying something to like one of your girlfriends, that's a sign you should be saying something out loud. Other people shouldn't know these issues ahead of your spouse. Accept your feelings, including anger, jealousy, and guilt. They're there for a reason. I have a chapter in my book called The Weather Vein Emotions, and I think of anger, jealousy, guilt as a sign that's pointing us to what is wrong and then sharing that with our partner. And when we decide guilt or anger or any of the kind of hard emotions aren't allowed, then we're cutting off a whole part of ourselves. And then, of course, how can we communicate that to our partner if we're not even accepting it in ourselves? And anger is a very positive emotion if you're actually listening to it and responding in a timely manner to it, because it's mm -hmm. probably telling you something that's really important. So important. I mean, anger is telling us, anger is how we can stand up for ourselves. It tells us where our boundaries are, right? And it, it points us to what we want and will and will not accept. So the next one is one topic at a time. That's great. Yeah. Because one of the problems, I mean, even when I'm sitting there in my room and I'm saying, yeah, 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 that might be the case, but we're talking about this now. And the frustration when they say, but this is connected, it's the same issue. 
And I say, but we can't solve two issues or three issues or four issues at the same time. Let's just talk about one. There mm. is such a huge desire to gather our evidence, and we'll come on to this in a moment. We don't actually feel our case is good enough without actually building such a huge case. And that just makes the bigger the case, the more defensive your partner's going to get, because you're not just talking about one thing, you're talking about their whole being. I talked with couples a lot about giving their partner a path to correction and repair. And I think when we, as you're saying, have built a case, you know, we're judge and jury. And by the time we're saying something, we're really against our partner. That's so overwhelming to them. And if our partner feels like, well, there's nothing I can do, then the therapy stops, right? And then what's the point? Whereas if you stick to one thing, at a time, I think that then it feels much more manageable to your partner. So tell us about this path to repair. A lot can happen in a relationship as long as there is meaningful repair after. And repair involves taking full responsibility for yourself and how you acted and also setting forth a path you know, that what you're doing to make sure, as if especially if it was a very anger reaction or, or shaming reaction, that that wouldn't happen again. So I think sometimes couples will have a fight and then it'll be so upsetting that they'll just move on and ignore it. There'll be no kind of post-game, you know, figuring out what went wrong and deciding what to do going forward. And I think that's the worst thing because then we just store all that pain in our bodies. Whereas if we can have a repair, we can really process it with our partner and hopefully grow closer and have a greater understanding once we're done. Now, the next one is possibly, I think, the hardest of all. But if you can do it, you will be getting an A plus from Tonya and I. When your partner makes a complaint, I'd like you to acknowledge the complaint rather than explain why you do it. And by acknowledging, it means you get upset when I, this is a personal one, get up in the morning, make noise and don't close the bedroom door so you wake up. Mm. Now, if when I get that complaint, my natural reaction is, can you guess what my natural reaction is, Tonya? No, I don't. I was tiptoeing around. I was like a ninja. I was quiet as can be. I didn't mean to, and uh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I start trying to explain why or defend myself when it would be much better to say, you're upset because I didn't close the bedroom door when I got up this morning. But we have to explain and defend ourselves. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, we're humans too, right? It's natural to get defensive. Corollary to what you're saying, I think is, well, I think you just said, I didn't mean to, as though it's only harmful to the other person if we intentionally inflicted harm, which of course is not the case, right? We we don't mean to hurt our partners usually, and yet we often do. So what ends up happening is we want to defend ourselves We don't want to be the bad guy in any situation. And what it sounds like to our partner is that you're actually trying to talk them out of how they're feeling as though they'll say, oh, oh, you're right. It was no big deal that you woke me up after I've only had a few hours. Oh, you're right. As opposed to saying like, you know, the dog. So back to the dog. Our dog trouble yesterday, he followed me in the bedroom. It's the one morning my husband gets to sleep in and jumped all over my husband. And so he, my husband was very annoyed. 
annoyed. And then, of course, so later, I, I'm so sorry. That must have been so irritating, right? And then, of course, then he feels understood. And then you just get to move on instead of like, well, the dog followed me. And what was I supposed to do? I thought the door was shut, right? Which is maybe how I, my initial instinct might have been. The next one, which I've sort of touched on a little bit, when you make a request like, please shut the door when you get up in the morning so you don't wake me, you don't need to justify or explain. You don't have to go on about how little sleep you got yesterday, how much work you've got doing, because what often happens is you start to justify or explain, you end up doing it three times and your partner will hear the description of the problem as a criticism. Mm. So. A really good way to healthy conflict is just to say what you want. You don't have to justify why you want it. What do you think of that? Often in therapy, I'll say to one partner, what's the request here? What is the request? Because we can fall down these rabbit holes of all this explanation. And I think it goes back to, as you were saying, making a case against our partner instead of simply like, what is the change that I want to go forward? And then, you know, your partner probably will be fine with shutting the door, right? If it ends up being that simple, if it's not couched in how irresponsible you are, that you don't care about whether they're tired, when actually there is sometimes there is a simple solution. And so we should grab those low hanging apples. The next one is don't use absolute terms like always and never. Why can they be red flags to a bull? No one wants to hear always or never, and it's never the case. Like we can say never, I'll use never accurately in that sentence. You know, it would be pretty rare that 100% of the time your partner was doing something that you didn't like. And so immediately they will find the hole in your argument, which is that it isn't never and it isn't always And, you know, then also people feel like you're painting them with such a a negative brush. So to stick to specific examples, to say, I've noticed this happening, as opposed to you always or you never will just have be a more productive conversation. And the other one I dislike is you should do this. And, Mm. you know, who is saying should? The government, all right thinking people, Uncle Tom Cobbley, or is it just you? Just you. That's right. I totally agree with that. If you need time out, that's fine, but keep your partner informed. Yes, I have kind of a framework around timeouts, right? Which is either partner is allowed to ask for a timeout at any time. The partner gives kind of an idea of what they need. I'm going to take a walk for a half an hour. If it needs to be extended, they inform their partner, just like you're saying. And then the person who took the timeout reintroduces the conversation. And so if you take the timeout, you're responsible then for going back to the issue at hand. And it's not a chance to just duck out of the argument and never talk about it again, is it? That's right. You have to come back to it. That That's part of the rules. Mm-hmm. The next one, or oh, the final one, is you've got to finish the conflict off which is a sort of, you've talked about it, a sort of debrief or maybe even an apology. Mm -hmm. A debrief. And also I think of the repair, right? We want to go all the way to the end. You know, I don't know if you find this in your practice, but sometimes I think people act like, you know, an apology is a thousand dollar bill and they have to be so (laughs) careful before they dole it out. Whereas, You can be sorry that your partner is in pain, you know, without negating your needs, right? I mean, an ideal end of the conflict is to 
tend to each other's hurt and hopefully, you know, maybe have some physical contact, a hug, or, you know, to really be showing empathy for your partner. And that does often involve an apology. I had uh, clients today spontaneously when they heard how much an action had upset their partner say, I'm sorry. And it just changed the atmosphere in the, the room. It was just magical. And I don't know about you, but I don't actually hear spontaneous apologies that often, which is sort of rather surprising to me. I, I don't know what happens in your therapy room. Yeah, I agree with that. Or there will be a sorry that's like, well, I'm sorry or sorry. And it it doesn't, it's not an apology. So to say, I'm sorry. And it, it like, I get it. I feel how much I hurt you. And I do not want to hurt you. I'm so sorry. Of course, that is, it softens your partner immediately and it, it changes the air in the room. That's the repair we're looking for. That I have a podcast on forgiveness on uh, Olivier Clerc, if you'd like to uh, check it out. I'll mm-hmm. put it in the show notes, as well as the link to the Terry Real episode. And he talks about a Hawaiian form of this, which is you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. And I was really surprised because I've I've started using it with clients sometimes. I always thought it was important to actually say what you're sorry for and actually just I'm sorry without, you know, X, Y, Z, which can tend to get into a sort of politician's kind of apology. I'm sorry that you took offence about what I said sort of kind of non-apology, but Mm. just I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. It's sort of, you don't need to go into the ins and outs of exactly what you're sorry about if it's actually coming from the heart. I also like, please forgive me, because it acknowledges that forgiveness is really the wronged partner's choice to grant, right? And so please forgive me. You know, I understand that I need to ask for forgiveness for us to actually move forward, actually heal from this. And to be asked, please forgive me, and to have that honored, like I get to choose now whether to forgive, I think is very repairing, especially in like a betrayal or something like that for the hurt partner. So how do you help people who fit into the category of either being Mr. Nice Guy, as far as men are concerned, or those sort of women who are successful and empowered at work, but swing between being too accommodating in their relationship and then exploding at home. Because Mr. Nice Guy normally ends up exploding as well further down the line too. How do you help people unpick those unhelpful patterns? We, you know, again, talk about speaking up earlier. I like the phrase, strike while the iron is cold, right? I think we don't have to wait until something has heated up to bring it up. It's also understanding that we humans are very, very complex. And if we are always the nice guy or never bringing up conflict, we're suppressing part of ourselves. No one is always a nice guy and we're cutting, we're cleaving off an important part of ourselves that we're not bringing to our relationship. And that is really what drains emotional intimacy from a relationship. You know, when a couple tells me, I'm sure you have this too, we never fight 
that doesn't sound good to me, you know, and they might, yeah, yeah. They might mean, if they mean we never yell and scream, fine. But if it's really like we never have disagreements, we never have hard conversations, then someone, probably both of you, but someone is really, really repressing their needs. And that is usually catastrophic and, and leads to the, as we were talking about earlier, walking into the office and some, one person is done and the other person is shocked. So it is about having empathy for our own humanity, the fact that we have needs and that if we have a persona we're always trying to fit into, then we aren't allowing ourselves to be known by our partner. Yes, and as well as the sort of I'm ready to walk scenario, you also get the other one that I write about, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, because mm. nearly always that's because there hasn't been enough conflict in your relationship. No conflict relationships as much a problem as high conflict relationships. What we want is healthy conflict. Now, okay. you have a, a lovely idea that I'd love you to talk about, which is with your clients, you focus on what you can do now rather than what is out of reach. So tell us about that. I always encourage people to look at, and this is individuals or with couples, of, of what's the next indicated step? And can I take that step now? Because oftentimes couples will overwhelm themselves looking at how many things they have to work on, you know, whether they will ever be happy, whether they're going to get to kind of the end of the yellow brick road. And of course, we all know there is no end to the yellow brick road. But to just say like, you know, I was thinking about this actually in the, the letter you sent me before the podcast. It's like, what is first? What can we do first? And then we can build upon that. And something I was also going to say in terms of the what I know for sure is that anything can improve, anything can be built, anything can be learned if we're consistent in our efforts. And consistency can start with very small steps. Well, I think you're right. I think we should launch into the letter and we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to participate in this program and have the combined knowledge of some of the leading people in their fields from around the country and from around the world, you can participate. Go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. There you can uh, sign up for my newsletter, the Meaningful Life newsletter. You can find out how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and help to fund this work, and you can write in to us, and this is one of the letters we've had. I've been married for 10 years and have an eight-year-old son. Ours was a love marriage. I've always been a cleanliness freak and like things in place. Also, I have temper issues, which subsided a bit after my son's birth. All this time, we used to have petty fights about my husband never wanting to do things and me ending up doing all of it. Also about him not having time at all for me, always being occupied with work, late nights, being distant. Our sex life is non-existent since six months or so. Every time I am the one to talk about our relationship and then we end up yelling at each other. I ask for a divorce and he tells me that we can separate. We sleep on it and then nothing happens. 
Actually, I'm so hurt deep inside, and moreover, every time I try to heal myself and think of forgiving and moving on, he does something to bring it all down. I'm not exactly proud of myself or the way I've behaved in this marriage, always being angry, and now more so. I'm so tired of it all. This is because I've become a completely different person and so bitter that I'm hating myself. I've become this depressed personality and I'm not like this. I'm loving and love to go out with friends and have people over and spend time with family. I yearn to be loved and I don't know when was the last time my husband actually hugged me lovingly. Ah, I can feel Mm -hmm. a great big sigh coming from inside. What was your reaction reading this, Tonya? That, you know, she's clearly in so much pain and so overwhelmed. And it sounds like she's feeling quite hopeless in terms of how she might move forward. And um, I think when we feel like we're stuck, like there's nowhere to fully turn, that is the worst feeling in our relationship, that when you feel trapped. So you were suggesting looking at what the first thing to be done is. So with this one, what is the first thing to be done? I thought it was interesting that she really led with her own anger issues and, you know, indicated that there's a lot of rigidity around kind of this idea of things being in their place, right? You wouldn't mention that in a letter unless you knew that that must be part of the problem. So what it sounds like is, you know, I wonder, obviously this is speculation, but if the husband wasn't kind of being like the nice guy role and that she kept amplifying her concerns in order to feel like she was being heard and then he withdrew even more, which of course we sometimes see. Or he might just be a stonewaller because, you know, if somebody's angry with you, you're not going to poke the dragon really, are you? Mm-hmm. That's right. And avoidance, perhaps, of problems or turtling, right? Where someone goes into their shell until the storm has passed and then just come out of the shell, but nothing has been learned or changed. I would suggest that to this woman that she really, really be working on her own anger issues and sense of rigidity. And of course, she could be journaling about that. She could be reading about that. The best thing to do would be perhaps to get individual therapy. So she felt very grounded and centered in what she is bringing to the relationship. It's very hard to change a relationship if you're lashing out and not taking responsibility and the other, you know, if he has been stonewalling because of her anger, if the anger isn't dealt with, the stonewalling will continue. If she's able... Mm-hmm. Let, let, just for a second, behind his stonewalling, there's going to be just as much anger there as well, isn't there? That's right. That's how he's expressing his anger, by stonewalling her, right? That's just another, it's as bad as yelling, right? To absolutely turn cold to someone is as painful as lashing out often. It's its own kind of lashing out. And I think it's really important you say that because stonewallers think they're being kind, you know, rather than giving you what for, they're just keeping silent. But it is actually incredibly painful to receive that stonewalling, isn't it? Incredibly painful. It's like, you know, the silent treatment, all of this, what it communicates is that you don't matter. You aren't even worth me getting angry at or talking to or trying to collaborate with you to get on the other side of this. So stonewalling is, is incredibly cruel, you know, depending on how far it's taken. 
as I read this, I'm sort of struck by the fact that all of us, and you know, this is every last one of us, want to be judged on what we're like inside rather than mm. how we act on the outside. Unfortunately, our partner only sees the outside. They don't see the inside, but we want to be judged on the inside because, you know, as she says inside, I'm a, a loving person. But actually, on the outside, I'm an angry person, and I want you to judge me by my love rather than by my anger. I mean, what I'm sort of almost begging this woman to do is to be as honest with her husband as she has been with us, to say, mm. you know, I'm not proud of the way I've behaved, you know, and to say, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that, I've become this angry, bitter person I don't like, and I want to change. And to have that degree of honesty with your partner would be a beautiful thing. I think it could even be a game changer. I totally agree. And it certainly is a good place to start, right? By taking full responsibility and having that full self-awareness of what she's doing that's impacting the relationship. Also, I think sometimes, especially if someone grew up in a, a family where there was a lot of anger, there's this instinct to minimize the impact of your anger, to say, that's not really what I feel. I was just so upset. I didn't mean that exactly. I was just so angry. Well, if only you behaved this way, I wouldn't need to react so explosively. And it wasn't that bad because it's not really how I feel on the inside, as you're saying. When the truth is, you know, it's as bad as how it lands on your partner. And so we have to truly take responsibility for how we're showing up in our relationships and not try and minimize that. And as you're saying, if we go from a place of vulnerability, right? Anger is often about control. If we go from a place of vulnerability of, I love you and I don't love how I'm showing up in this relationship and I'm committed to change, that is the only thing that will start the path to repair. And please don't have the temptation then to say, these are the ways that you need to change because I think you've got to leave it up to your husband to start thinking about the way he wants to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And then if you're changing and you're not, you know, the stonewalling is continuing and the kind of opting out of the work of family life, which she indicates is continuing, then, then you get to decide whether this is just a, a compatibility issue, you know, whether this is something that you're willing to live with or not. Or you can then say, look, I'm changing, but we need some help with our relationship. You know, will you go along to couple therapy and we can talk there about things like how we divide up family responsibilities? It's a totally different kind of conversation when some of the heat has gone off there. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I hope that was helpful to you. And as I say, if you'd like to do something similar, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. So I think as a witness on The Meaningful Life, I need to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? My relationships with both my immediate family, my husband and our two children, but also I have a very big extended family who I'm quite close to. And Oh, by uh, the way, hello, mum. <laughs> Yeah. Hi, Mom. <laughs> yeah. My mom's one of 13, so we have a sprawling wow. family. Yeah. And my friends. And so, you know, as, as, as I know, this is the basis of your show. It's, it's our lives that make our relationships that make our lives meaningful. And certainly 
that's how I feel. And I would extend that to my relationships with my clients. I do feel like this is meaningful work. I feel called to do it. And I feel, you know, very privileged to be invited into these core relationships and try and offer assistance to couples who are working hard on themselves and on their relationships. Well, I'm looking forward to your book coming out. When is it going to be ready for us to read? Hopefully very early January 2024. We're having a little hiccup, but if not then, then by summer. So that's the goal, definitely. Excellent. Well, this is where the conversation has to end unless you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, because next I'm going to talk to Tonya about an article that she wrote for her website, which I rather liked, which was called How to Confess to Infidelity. And we sort of imagine that there's going to be a um, no-pain, free way to tell. We'll find out if that's true on the bonus material. And if you'd like to hear that material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. Don't forget, we're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, and please do, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.